Welcome to the 395th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Robert Verchik, environmental law professor at Loyola University, New Orleans. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. I'm glad to rejoin you after a couple of weeks, although the pandemic has changed yet again somehow since the last COVID calls episode I did with John Mualam in 2020, just at Christmas time. We'll be looking forward to scheduling COVID calls all the way through March of 2022 and perhaps beyond. So please do be in touch with me if you have ideas or topics or for guests who you think would really fit in with COVID calls. Thank you for that. As of today, January 10th, 2022, there are 5,488,794 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is a story going back to March of 2020. This was published March 29th, 2020 on CNN.com by Daniel Burke, and the title is Coronavirus Preys on What Terrifies Us, Dying Alone. Steve Kaminsky was whisked into an ambulance near his home on New York's Upper East Side in March of 2020. He never saw his family again. Kaminsky died days later of COVID-19, the disease caused by the novel coronavirus. Because of fears of contagion, no visitors, including his family, were allowed to see him at Mount Sinai Hospital before he died. Seemed so surreal, said Diane Siegel, Kaminsky's daughter-in-law. How could someone pass so quickly and with no family present? Mitzi Moulds, Kaminsky's companion of 30 years, was quarantined herself, having also contracted the coronavirus. She worried Kaminsky would wake up and think she'd abandoned him. Truthfully, I think he died alone, said Bert Kaminsky, one of Steve's sons, even if a doctor was there. As the coronavirus stalks victims around the world, one of its scariest aspects is how it seems to feed on our deepest fears and prey on our primal instincts, like the impulse to be close to people we love when they're suffering and near death. The painful irony, the very thing we need in moments of fear and anxiety could also kill us. Many hospitals and nursing homes have closed their doors and placed COVID-19 patients in isolation wards to prevent the disease from spreading. One doctor called it the medical version of solitary confinement. Just a reminder, this article is coming from March of 2020. Priests are administering last rites over the telephone while families sit helplessly at home. The isolation extends beyond coronavirus patients. Amy Tucci, president of the Hospice Foundation of America, estimates that 40% of hospice patients in hospitals or nursing homes, 40% of patients are in hospitals or nursing homes, many of which have placed strict restrictions on visitors. Their families, too, are worried about loved ones dying without them. 
We crave closure, said Maryland psychologist Dr. Kristen Bianchi. So it's only natural we would want to be there in our loved one's final moments. We want to bear witness to that process and say our last goodbyes. Something about dying alone seems to haunt us. To some, it may suggest the deceased's life lacked love and worth, and that in the end, they were forgotten. Some medical experts challenge the idea that scores of people are dying unaccompanied in hospitals right now. In many instances, they said hospital staff are standing vigil by patients' bedsides during their last moments. It's not ideal, they say, but they're not quite the lonely deaths we may imagine. As a lung specialist and member of the Optimum Care Committee at Massachusetts General Hospital, Dr. Emily Rubin is on the front lines of the pandemic. Even if the disease is too mighty, the ethic of not abandoning people is so strong. The hospital where 41 employees recently tested positive for coronavirus in 2020 in March does not admit visitors except for limited circumstances like births and in some cases for patients near death. But Rubin said the situation is evolving rapidly as the virus spreads. In some cases, the hospital may connect families and COVID-19 victims electronically instead of in person. Other times, nurses and other hospital staff will step in to stand vigil. Even if the disease is too mighty, the ethic of not abandoning people is so strong, Rubin said. We feel like being present with people at the end of life is a huge part of what we do. People in a hospital are not dying alone. Still, shepherding patients through the last stages of life can take an emotional and physical toll on doctors, nurses, and other hospital staff, Rubin acknowledged. Dr. Daniela Lamas, a critical care doctor at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, wrote about that toll in a recent New York Times opinion piece. Devastating image of the lonely deaths of coronavirus patients, she wrote, in Italy hangs over us all. Talking with one of the nurse practitioners in our hospital's new COVID-19 ICU one recent night, I asked what worried her most, patients dying alone, she replied quickly. When we think about dying alone, we're really talking about two separate things, psychologists say. The fear that people we love will die alone and the fear that we ourselves will stare down death solo. It creates an almost uh, it creates in almost everyone a sense of terror, said Bianchi of the Center for Anxiety and Behavioral Change. We want to be able to cushion the experience from what we believe will be a painful and difficult experience. We also want to be there because we imagine ourselves in that scenario. Before Steve Kaminsky died, a nurse practitioner at Mount Sinai set up a group call so he could hear his family's voices one last time. His face brightened, the nurse told family members, as each offered their tearful goodbyes or said hope against hope, but they'd see him when he left the hospital. On a ventilator, Kaminsky himself could say nothing. When he died days later, it was a sudden and stunning end to 86 years of vibrant life, said Bert Kaminsky, Steve's son. But Bert Kaminsky said he took some solace from a dinner he shared recently with his father and his father's longtime partner. They went to a Vietnamese restaurant, drained a bottle of Merlot, and then feasted on ice cream. His father was his usual bon vivant self, Bert remembers. People shouldn't take it for granted that there's time to connect with them later, particularly older family members, Kaminsky said. This thing can come very suddenly. No visitors, no final words. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest, Rob Verchik. Rob Verchik is one of the nation's leading scholars in disaster and climate change law. 
and a former EPA official in the Obama administration. He teaches at Loyola University, New Orleans, and at Tulane University. He also hosts the podcast CPR's Connect the Dots, which focuses on climate justice, health and safety, and improving democracy. Rob Verchik, it's great to see you and welcome to COVID Calls. Well, thanks for having me. I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from. I know you're in New Orleans, but if, if you want to get more specific than that, I think a lot of listeners will know what you're talking about and, and what the pandemic looks like there. Well, I am in New Orleans. I'm at my house, uh, which is in a neighborhood called Uptown, which is by Loyola University and, and Tulane University and by Audubon Park for people who might know um, that area. Um, you know, uh, it's 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 a little bit stressful right now with um, with uh, Omicron, but it is um, we have a, a pretty high vaccination rate in New Orleans compared to a lot of cities in the South. We're around 86 percent, which is good. The state is at about 57 percent, so much lower. Um, one of the things that uh, we have, uh, uh, Latoya Cantrell, who's been really, I think, pretty good for the most part about uh, about COVID protocol. Uh, one of the things she did is made sure that you can't get in a bar or a restaurant if you aren't vaccinated. And so uh, that's how all my students decided to get vaccinated and a lot of other people in the city, too. Um, so that, you know, that that's pretty good. But um, but I have to say we've got a lot of hospitalizations, something like 1500, I think, in the state uh, and maybe 400 uh, hospitalizations, I think, in the city right now. And, um, you know, a lot of people are on pins and needles at the same time. Mardi Gras is coming up. We are not going to cancel it this year. And uh, some of the parade routes are a little uh, shorter, I guess, but uh, I have no idea uh, what is in store for us uh, in those last two weeks of February. So we'll have to see. And I remember uh, those debates and discussions about Mardi Gras in 2020 and whether or not yeah. the city and, and the city remained open through that. If I if I recall, were there any restrictions at all, I mean, any any lessons learned from 2020 that carried over to the next year and beyond, or it's, it's, it's well, I think well, well, what was so different, obviously, in 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 20 was uh, we didn't have a vaccine, and so and right. and, and of course that was right um, right before uh, a lot of the. I mean, we had information about COVID, but it certainly wasn't dominating the news the way that it was then, and so. Uh, it was a super spreader event for sure. And then Mardi Gras was canceled the year after that. And, um, and now we've got vaccinations. Some of the crews, the, the organizations that the private organizations that run their, their floats, um, some of them are, are now, I understand, saying that you can't ride on the float unless you're vaccinated, uh, mm. which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I don't. I don't know if you've been in Mardi Gras here. I mean, it's 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 fun. It's pandemonium, though, and and, and it's it's almost impossible to control crowds when they're when they're that large. Um, and of course, yeah. the bars and the restaurants just get stuffed with people. I can't imagine that they can really check, uh, you know, who's vaccinated and who isn't, and so on. So we'll have to see. I mean, even on ordinary day, the concepts of Mardi Gras or New Orleans in general and social distance don't seem to work together. So, yeah, um, it's true. Yeah. We're a real hugging culture down here. People, 
talk with their hands and yeah it is i mean that that's one of the lovely things about this city but it's uh it's not good during a, a pandemic you know we'll come back to talking about katrina i'm sure but you mentioned the hospital capacity and it, it did make me wonder um you know did the city ever recover the hospital capacity it had before katrina you know that's a really good question it's it, 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 it's hard in some ways because we have a smaller population um mm. than than we did um, we, I, I, you know, in, in normal times, in non-pandemic times, I think we had, uh, we had a good, uh, capacity. I'm not a healthcare expert, but I think that, that, that's a fair statement. Um, the dis distribution of who gets medical care and on what terms has always been hard, um, as it is in a lot of places in the United States. Um, but I think, you know, like everywhere else, healthcare workers are really frazzled right now. And um, and there, you know, we all wish we had more beds and, and more resources than we do. Rob, do you have a memory of this pandemic that really crystallizes it for you? Well, you know, like like many people, I probably have a few. But uh, but one that I keep coming to was uh, actually uh, one that involved my father-in-law, who's uh, who's now in his uh, late 90s and just the the first summer of the pandemic, he lives in Washington state and I was out there in the summertime. Uh, and, and, and often I'm out there with, uh, with the rest of my wife's family and so on. And, and he and I have a really good relationship and we always like to, you know, maybe once a week, whatever it is, have a, like a martini, you know, right before dinner or something, something he really likes to do and has done all, all of his life. And, uh, when I showed up that summer, uh, to his house, I, I couldn't go in, right. No one wanted to, be the one that that got uh you know that, that that got him sick at 95 or whatever it was that he was at that time um and it was cold and windy even though it was summertime out there uh, outside of seattle and uh so I, I we agreed i said let's go on here so we went outside on the deck and we made he made martinis in one glass i had you know we we, mm -hmm. we were literally about Two 20 seconds. feet away uh <laughs> 20 feet away on that deck, looking at each other in in uh, jackets and, and blankets and just kind of trying to talk over that space in the wind. And we toasted and then it started to rain <laughs> and, and we stayed out there. <laughs> we just I can picture it. <laughs> I can picture your glass filling up with the rainwater. And I thought, well, there it is. He's not going to get COVID, but he, 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 he's, he's going to get sick from being outside the cold um, from exposure. But it, it, that wasn't the case. And we ended up having a good time. And, and um, uh, I, I, we still have martinis on Zoom every once, every once in a while when I'm here in New Orleans. So that's well, I, I was going to ask. I hope he's still doing well. He is doing well. Yeah, he gets a little stir crazy, but we all do. Yeah, that um, that describing that uh, vignette is one that m it makes me think of my father-in-law, who might engage, who would love to join you there on that, yeah, on, exactly. that on that deck, or you all might like to join him where he is in in Massachusetts. But um, you know, of course, those daily routines are incredibly important, and and you know, speaks a bit to the the news story I read, which was from 2020, but is still relevant about people just isolation and loneliness at this time. Not in death, yes, but even in life as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. So um, let's pick up a little bit about your about your work, Rob. And um, I'd like to start with the the book you wrote uh, after Katrina, facing catastrophe, environmental action for a post Katrina world. And you were at that time already um, 
getting engaged with work with the EPA. So, I mean, this is right after Katrina. People are still trying to make sense of what happened. I mean, it's a few years after, but I mean, this the sense making about what was going on is still very lively in the United States at that time. I think the book came out in 2010. You were probably mm -hmm. working on it, I would imagine, either before Katrina or immediately after. So talk to me a little bit about that, that book. And I want to find out how, in general, looking back at those concerns through the prism of COVID, how you see some of that differently today, if you do. Yeah, I um, well, the answer to your question about when I started writing it was was right after the storm. It was a kind of like therapy. I mean, you know, literally, I was you know not in my house, you know our house took on fifteen feet of water, and so it was a a mold farm for many weeks. And so my family was out in Washington State. I was uh, living at Houston at the time, uh, teaching at the University of Houston, and. Um, and I was actually, you know, before I, you know, I was, uh, before I even had a chance to get any of my belongings or whatever, I was flying to DC testifying before Congress on various things, uh, you know, having to do with Katrina and the levees and all of these, literally buying suits at the airport, you know, so I could show up. And it just all felt so surreal. And so a lot of the writing started, you know, writing on the airplane, trying to make sense of it, writing in hotel rooms, uh, taking some of the testimony and turning it into part of a chapter. Um, quite this kind of loneliness, you know, because I felt very disconnected. I felt like nobody understood what I was going through. I, other people in the city, I thought, understood, but I don't think anybody else did. You know, that was my view. And I thought, well, I want to share this, you know, for myself and my family. And then I also want to make sure that I can write it in a way that's relevant for the future and for other types of places. And it seemed to me that the lens of, uh, of, of environmental protection was a good one because environmental protection is about surveying risks and things that might happen in the future and, and trying to make good decisions so that you can enjoy life and and flourish but at the same time not screw things up and um and i just i i i thought it was it, it was a way to bring in things that i saw there were terrible unfairnesses you know having to do with injustice of all kinds um there were issues about people not understanding or communicating properly about risk and about sort of potential harm and um and then at the same time too i i think that there was a, a, an over-reliance on technology uh technology is wonderful but so is uh, so are a lot of our other ecosystem services and so i found that that was a way to bring all of those together and i said right then you know i was it was kind of a funny moment you may know you know as a as, as an academic or researcher yourself sometimes you you get an appointment, you're like, well, what am I going to, what's my next thing going to be? What's the next direction I'm going to go? And after that storm, I said, you know what? Everything I do is going to be about climate change and, uh, and protecting uh, against the worst of climate change because storms like that are obviously something that, that are amplified as a result of that. And so that's what I've done. The rest of my career has been, uh, climate change. And, um, and I'm actually writing a new book now, uh, that uh, is going to be called The Octopus in the Parking Garage, and it's about climate resilience for a popular audience. And um, and so I'm taking up where I left off. And, and just to recover that moment for a second, I mean, I think journalists have gotten much better 
in mainstream media at least has gotten much better about being able to talk about weather events and climate change and and not get tripped up yeah. in in pausing and hesitating and saying, well, we're not totally sure about this one, but you know, wasting a paragraph of an important you know news piece on that. But in 2005, that was very common to still sort of ask that question. And I'm, I'm not sure it was asked in good faith, even in 2005. Maybe some people still asked it in good faith. Can we connect Katrina to climate change? So, I mean, recovering that sort of moment of contingency is an important one. And you were pretty forceful about that. Yeah, I, I mean, you can't say that that Katrina was a, a w w would have not happened if, if we didn't have climate change. You can't say that. But what you can say is that the waters at the time were really warm and that they contributed energy to that storm. Uh, and that, uh, you know, it's it's sort of like uh, uh, an athlete who takes steroids or something. You can't you can't say, oh, well, that that was the home run that. It was done with steroids, but what you yeah. can say is that steroids over time uh, changes a, a ball player's record in various ways, and and then you can say the same thing I think about um, uh, about this, certainly about hurricanes and cyclonic events, certainly about wildfires, which uh, there's a lot of attribution science connecting uh, almost individual wildfires uh, to particular types of climate change. I think the one that that uh, we don't have as good a beat on right now are tornadoes. And of course, those have been in the news. Mm -hmm. um, but there, you know, there is a, a theoretical basis to link tornadoes with uh, with some kinds of climate change. So, um, uh, you know, I think the bottom line is it doesn't matter so much about one individual event. The, the, the issue is we're going to be having more of these kinds of events because in part of climate change. And so, we have to do two things. We have to reduce carbon so that we reduce the odds of, of that kind of amplification. And then the second thing we have to do is to prepare on the ground for um, for a wilder set of weather events. Right. And, you know, that that attribution, I understand why people want to make that link, but it seems it's something else you've written about in terms of social vulnerability to disaster. You know, the same forces that that. You know, created you know the petrochemical industry which is rooted there uh in louisiana and and southeast texas that those are in many ways the same forces that create the structural poverty and structural inequality uh and a poor living environment for people who live in that in that space so you know connecting katrina to climate change is one thing that's sort of downstream a little bit as far as i'm concerned and i think you are interested in these issues as well what are the larger forces that are producing a world where we can make destructive things and then not seem to worry about the impact it has on people. Yeah, I think, you know, the fossil fuel industry is <laughs> is, 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 a, is a fascinating thing. I mean, it, it, and obviously here in Louisiana, uh, it, it's quite attached to the fossil fuel industry. There's a lot of pride on here for the technology that's been developed. I mean, they invented uh, offshore uh, drilling. Uh, here in in the state of Louisiana, and uh, and there are a lot of people who spend a lot of of their careers and jobs working in that area. On the other hand, um, it has a, a lot of bad effects and has contributed uh, to them. And uh, you know, you can drive up 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 the river to an area you know, that's called Cancer Alley here, with the largest concentration of of uh, petrochemical plants and refineries in the in in North America, um, mainly black communities, uh, 
poor communities in those areas. And they're, uh, you know, they, they are, their property values are depressed, right? They've been cheated of, of, of um, uh, increased value of their property that they owned for generations. Um, their health is worse. Uh, and they and they really aren't getting a lot of those benefits. And you know, when you can look at something like Hurricane Ida, which blew here through in August, um, they were uh, some of the most badly hit areas too. Um, and you know, Hurricane Ida, another kind of you know, another hurricane mm -hmm. which uh, you know has all of the marks of of, of a storm that, that is the kind that gets amplified as a result of climate change. And we had very warm water in the Gulf. Uh, when Ida came through, largest storm we've seen, I think, in 70 years or so, you know, here in the city. I, I wanted to ask you about your experience working with the EPA. You were uh, Deputy Associate Administrator for Policy at the U.S. EPA and the Obama administration. Um, and, you know, sometimes faculty members do that. I think maybe sometimes and more commonly from law schools, uh, they get pulled into government service. So there's a bit more of a back and forth. But for a lot of us, the closest we'll ever get to that is maybe a chance to testify or even speak to a staff member if we're lucky. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that experience was like you know, to be uh, front row when environmental rules making is happening. Well, it's it's pretty. Um it's a busy job. It's a very challenging job. I loved it, uh, to tell you the truth. Uh, we had a, a super team at the EPA. This was the first uh, term of the Obama administration under Lisa Jackson. Mm -hmm. um, the political appointees were uh, very, very top-notch folks. Uh, and But I'll tell you what, the, the, the staff, the everyday career staff at the EPA, uh, I mean, they're just... Um, they're they're all gems. They're they're all the best in their fields, and and so I was working in the in what's called the policy office. I was actually a deputy uh, of that office. Was in charge of uh, essentially supervising you know a large portion of the rulemaking going through EPA at the time. Um, it was like being in a candy store in a way because you know you go to meetings and there's always there's a rule about. Uh, you know, lead in products. There's another rule about air pollution. Then there's a rule about, you know, uh, carp in, in the Great Lakes. And, you know, it does, it does everything all, all kind of at once. Um, and those experts, uh, those people at EPA were very, very top notch. I learned so much, uh, being around them and, uh, and learning about how they, about how they do their jobs, uh, and how dedicated, you know, really they are. It's a testament to how well-suited well you are to your area of expertise to describe uh, showing up to learn about lead and drinking water or carp <laughs> in the Great Lakes as a, as a, can, a visit to a candy store. I, and, of course, <laughs> as you were describing those things, I was getting very excited, too. So maybe I, I enjoy shopping at the same candy store. I just want to remind folks that uh, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today to Rob Verchik. And uh, Rob, let me turn to uh, your, your thinking about disaster justice, and I, and I want to bring this back to COVID. 
yeah. as well. And uh, you've been working on this topic um, for a while now. You published a, an article in Environmental Law and Policy Forum going back to 2012. And I'm going to just, uh, this is a piece about uh, disaster. Let me get the, the title here right in front of me. Disaster Justice, the Geography, the geography of Human Capability. Disaster Justice, the Geography of Human Capability. And um, I'm just going to read a couple lines from it, and then we can, we can dive into it. But you write in that piece, in some cases, we could reduce disaster risk more affordably by steering more of our risk reduction resources toward the social side. Of the equation, but does that mean that our current disaster policies, admittedly far from perfect, are blameworthy? Are they unjust? The question is more than a thought experiment, right? So, what does disaster justice mean to you? And and let's talk about this article a little bit and the way that you construct a sort of uh, environmental law framework for how we could be thinking about justice. Well, I. Um... I started thinking about these ideas, uh, you know, when I when I got into this field of disaster after after having been in the environmental law field for so long, I started reading all the social um, uh, the science uh, related to, to disasters and, and the history uh, of, of of disasters in your field. And and one of the things that was interesting is some of these things made um, they reminded me of things that were going on in the environmental movement, but others of them did. Uh, but one thing that did uh, strike me is that uh, in the environmental justice movement, which I have written a lot about over the years, um, one of the one of the insights in the environmental justice movement is that uh, is that uh, poor people, people of color, people from other marginalized groups suffer more from environmental harm. And one of the reasons is uh, that they are exposed often to more environmental harm. But another reason is that they're often susceptible to it in different ways. Uh, you know, if you want to think of, uh, of, 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 of women of childbearing age, for instance, who have to are asked, told by the EPA to limit their intake of, of tuna because of mercury contamination, you know, these, these kinds of things. And, um, and so I started looking in the literature on disaster. And, and um, I mean, historically, we know. I mean, you can, if, you, if you study the history of almost any kind of disaster in the United States or in Europe, for that matter, um, that there's the, the, the poor and outsiders, marginalized groups will bear a disproportionate burden. I mean, you, you, you can't listen to American blues music without getting that message. You know, everything's about a flood, right? And about, uh, you know, the, the harm of, of poor families during floods and things like that. What I found out was that uh, this is empirically shown uh, in, the, in the United States uh, since the 1950s. Um, that at almost every point on the timeline of a disaster, whether it's uh, getting prepared for one or responding or getting help during it or later on being compensated or being able to recover, at every single point on that timeline, blacks and Hispanics in the United States um, have a uh, have a harder time uh, either either preparing or evacuating or responding or recovering. Um, and so it's built right in the system. And, uh, you know, the, the, the reasons for that, if I could just sort of oversimplify a little bit, is there, it has to do with something I call geographic resilience uh, or lack of it and social resilience. And so the geographic part 
is that for a variety of reasons, uh, certain groups uh, are found more readily in areas that are prone to disaster, whether it's wildfire or whether it's the flooding of rivers, uh, floodplains, these kinds of things. A lot of that has to do with property markets and property markets, of course, have been racialized for years in the United States. Uh, and of course, if you're poor, you, you can afford the cheaper property and it's, and it's, has more exposure, more geographic, physical exposure. But the second part is the, is the lack of social resilience, some kinds of social resilience. Uh, so good health, uh, access to medical care, good information, the ability to, to, to speak and read the language that instructions are coming to you in. All of these things are, are social factors uh, that, uh, that affect how well you're going to do in the I, I sometimes say, so that's the social resilience part. And I kind of uh, equate it to a, um, uh, to a person's own health, right? Like you might, uh, you might work really hard, not you ride your bike, you wear a helmet, you do all these things and you, and you try not to get in an accident, but maybe you will get in an accident. You'll break, you'll, you'll go to the hospital. Now, your ability to recover will have something to do about how well you, you, how safe you were while you were riding and whether you wore a helmet and all those things. Another, uh, another factor in how well you recover is going to be your overall health when you got in the accident. Uh, you know, how, you know, were you overweight? Uh, did, did you have heart trouble? Um, did, you know, uh, were you elderly? Uh, did you eat right? You know, these kinds of things. And so, uh, the reason that you should want to have a healthy body is not so you'll survive a bicycle accident, but it doesn't hurt. <laughs> you know, it doesn't hurt as much when you do. And and what we think is a healthy society, it's freer of of, of inequalities um, so that our communities are just more resilient the same way that a healthy body is more resilient. And, you know, the, a lot of times, um, even in resilience, I, I feel like, the solutions get very technical very quickly. Yeah. They get very yeah. focused on new technology, on uh, new mapping, you know, approaches. And, and of course, and I'm not here to, to run down my colleagues in the School of Engineering because uh, I'm a huge admirer and colleague of what, uh, you know, admirer of what many of my colleagues do. But I don't hear a discussion of justice a lot of times in that regard. What I hear is about technological fixes, working with communities, maybe sometimes the community appears as a kind of a black box, um, and that work is left to somebody else. But when you move the discussion into the justice frame, it it fundamentally changes it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Uh, and, and, you know, I mentioned that I thought there was an insight, insights you could find in one discipline that could be applied to another. One of the insights, um, that I found actually in, in the area of social science and disaster was, was the insight, uh, this, this concern as, as perhaps limited as it is, but this concern with what is sometimes called social vulnerability and the, uh, what academics sometimes call social vulnerability. Um, and Susan Cutter and some other geographers and people who study disaster have, have done a fairly good job at trying to say, Hey, you know, issues of, of, of gender, LGBT, LGBTQ status, um, uh, uh, race, uh, income, 
age, disability, all of these things are associated with one's ability to absorb a shock and then and then recover uh, better from it. But, you know, having been in government, I can tell you, right, that it is um, it's easy to say those things, but it's hard to implement them. You know, and I found this out when I was in the administration, I was working on, on a rule at one point that involved the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, and and uh, what the what the, it was an executive order from President Obama and the executive order uh, essentially said, look, Army Corps of Engineers and all you other agencies, when you build things, we want you to do a kind of inquiry that takes into consideration more social effects as well as the economic effects. If you build a levy uh, that's going to leave some people in and some people out of protection, uh we want we want some information about uh, the demographics and about how that might affect the community and these kinds of things and there was a lot of pushback you know from the army corps and and at first i thought oh well that's just because they don't care about you know this and and what i i gradually came to understand is that the very good people working at the army corps they didn't have any experts in any of those fields uh and they certainly didn't have money to hire them. Uh, right. And so, you know, I had one one person tell me, he says, well, you want, we're going to have to start hiring anthropologists now. We're going to have to start, uh, you know, hiring different kinds of economists. We're going to have right. to start hiring historians. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah, you will, you know, yeah. but that's easy for me to say because it's not my budget. Uh, and And I think that's, what this means when we say it's more complicated is that you just can't run a cost benefit analysis and say this is the right answer you have to you have to look further and that's that's harder it, it, when we do talk about disaster injustice in the con context of let's say katrina or or covid it also seems to me to a certain extent to lay greater emphasis on what government can and should do i mean yeah. if this is a fundamentally a justice problem then we turn you know, when we want injustice uh, to be adjudicated, we turn to the courts and we turn to the political process. Now, that seems to somehow be against the grain of where the United States is as a society right now. Even Democrats um, get elected and reelected talking about shrinking government these days. It's not only Republicans. So how do we meet that? How do you meet that that concern? I mean, if 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 it is an injustice problem with disasters, and I agree with you 100% on that, sure, yeah. we're going to need a government that wants to do something about that. Yeah, I, 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 I it's it's a hard it's a hard question, and I, I'm going to bring it to COVID if I can, uh, you know, because just to show you how these things all get connected. Um, so here in in Louisiana, um, the uh, the, the deaths from COVID, and these are older numbers, they generally came from the 2020 and 2021, but, uh, but the proportion of African-Americans who died of COVID in Louisiana is much higher uh, than their demographics would suggest. Uh, <clears throat> so it's, it's an indicator, being African-American is an indicator of a, of a COVID death. And there are lots of reasons for that. Um, but one reason has to do with the with the the types of jobs that people have, and whether they're outward facing and whether they could do their work at home or whether they were, you know, running the uh, driving the bus or uh, packing groceries in the grocery store and these kinds of things. <clears throat> it's also true in Louisiana 
Actually, it's true in the United States. We, we have a study from the Harvard uh, Public Health School in, in 2020 showing that exposure to fine particles, uh, soot-like particles, pollution in the air uh, leads to a larger increase. If you've, if you've been exposed over time to that, your chances of dying of COVID, if you get it, are much higher. Uh, and that explains a lot of the people who are in Louisiana, too, who, you know, in these areas that I've told you, these poor uh, areas uh, where there's a lot of pollution. And so, you know, all of a sudden it looks like, well, if you want everyone to be sort of more resilient in terms of, of COVID risk, you need to control pollution. Uh, you need to control occupational safety. Um, you need to get people more bargaining power at their job, uh, which means unions or whatever. And, and and pretty soon you've got this long, very sort of progressive list of all of these things. And how do you convince people um, that, hey, we need to do all of this because if there's a hurricane or another pandemic, we want to have a more resilient society. I think it's I, I think it's hard to make. I mean, I can make the case economically. I think it's hard to make the case politically to people because that's not how people experience um, political issues. I think they think, uh, as as I do too, as a voter, they think with emotions, uh, and right. they think with their rationale, and they think, uh, you know, with different with different experiences. And so, I, I I really think a key to all of this is just broader communication uh, with people of of all different sorts, and and broader connection with people of all different sorts, which is hard in a pandemic. Um, we need to build empathy. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think that is, is probably uh, a more effective thing in the long run than, than trying to make the case just with economic. I mean, you can make the case with economics and one should, but I, I don't think that's enough. Well, I, let me just remind everybody you're listening to COVID Calls and I'm talking to Rob Virchik today, environmental law scholar. To that last point that you made, Rob, you know, for a long time, um, People quote these statistics. I think they go back to the 1990s. You know, for every dollar we spend on yeah. resilience, we get a fourfold return in the economy. And and I've, I can't tell you how many different contexts I've heard that. And and sometimes people say, for every dollar we spend, we get tenfold. You know, and yeah. and I I'm excited about that. That makes sense. Um, but I I don't. I'm with you. I don't see how that actually translates into action because I don't know many people who would be motivated. Uh, to follow an issue through, um, to stand by their neighbor, to even sign a petition if that's the reason for it. It, it, it has to be something more fundamental than that. But to the, to this concept of disaster justice, um, you know, is it, I guess the other thing I wanted to ask you about it is how do you see its connection to the environmental justice movement more generally? Are they, are they pretty much the same thing, but disaster justice is, is somehow more in, inclusive or are we really talking about um, you know basically the same the same thing with different terminology yeah you know I get in this conversation a lot because you know if you follow this kind of work you get disaster justice climate justice right. um, environmental justice um, worker justice these these sorts of things I, I, um, I think that they are all of course related. Um, I think that, um, that my, when I think about the justice part of any of it, 
uh, one of the things that um, that occurs to me is that I that that we need to think about people who are going to um, we we can identify the people who would be better off in these sorts of you know uh, progress progressive fantasies right but there are going to be people who are going to be worse off at least initially whether it's workers in the fossil fuel industry uh, or whether it's uh, people who lose their job because of the pandemic they're no longer uh, you know uh, able to be uh, you know on the shop floor or whatever it is or um, and and we need stronger safety nets and stronger transition systems uh, to move people in that direction. One of the this is maybe going a little sideways here, but one of the things I think is so interesting there was a piece in the paper uh, today. I think it was the New York Times saying that uh, in West Virginia, uh, Senator Manchin state, um, the coal the owners of the coal mines don't like the Build Back Better plan because it's it's going to it's going to ratchet down the consumption of fuel. The coal miners are okay with it. In fact, they like it. And one of the reasons they like it is because there's a, a just transition piece built in to to that um, to that legislation that would provide a solution and maybe get them in different kinds of work that they might have preferred to begin with. And and so I think one of the things that we that that is that's about this is 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 value is what the values are, and and what the solutions are. So, you know, COVID to me is just an amazing example of something like this. You know, when when it looked in the very beginning, at least to some people, like the solution was to stop immigration and travel from China. Um, there were certain uh, folks on the conservative side who were like, let's do it. <laughs> you know, let's go. And, right. and, and if you think about Ebola, right, when the, we had the Ebola uh, uh, outbreak and the first reaction was we have to stop air travel from African countries or whatever it was. Um, you know, it, all of a sudden, you know, the conservatives had no problem seeing the threat of a virus. Uh, it's only when the threat of the virus starts to impinge on values that they really care about. Uh, like being able to go where you want, when you want, and, uh, you know, and uh, um, and not have to be controlled, so to speak, you know, by by government, all of a sudden, then it starts to look like something uh, that, uh, uh, you know, that they don't want to be a part of. And, and, and climate change is, you know, the same thing, you know, if you're okay with global cooperation, and you're, and, and you're looking forward to uh, a, a government regulation of of the energy economy, then then you know climate change is your bag. But if you if you're afraid of those things and don't like them, um, you have to find other ways to appeal. Uh, and, and I think you can. I think you can find other ways to appeal. But I but you don't do it by banging people on the head and saying, uh, you know, um, you you have to you have to be in favor of. Lar of large government regulation, I think you you will at some point have to be in favor of large government regulation, but that's not that's not the that's not the foot in the door. But it, but you know, with COVID and and again, just to go back to Katrina, I mean, yeah. I wouldn't have thought you'd have to explain to people that they needed to care about their neighbors. Yeah, and I and to me again, it comes back to why I think your work is so important. Um, and I get those scenarios you've painted are exactly, you know, make a lot of sense. 
to me, but and I think it maybe it shows my naivete about the law because I guess the law doesn't assume that either, does it? In terms of environmental law or the kind of law we need for disaster justice, maybe that's why we have the law in the first place in these domains. Well, it doesn't I, yes. assume you should take care of your neighbor. I think that the, the the problem, yes, I I, I think the problem is that um, the law in the United States is not very good at imposing um, at imposing um, duties on the part of government, for sure. It's better at, 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 uh, at imposing barriers on government. Government can't interfere with your religion in, in many ways. It, it can't interfere with your free speech in many ways and so on. Um, but yeah, we have a long, uh, you know, sort of uh, trajectory of cases in the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court has said, you know, hey, if the federal government didn't do enough to build your levy properly, I mean, this is not not a hypothetical. Right. Um, the federal government designs a levy properly, properly, and it floods an American city. Um, there was basically there's basically no recourse, right? Uh, and uh, and I think that's uh, yeah. I I I think you know that that's that's a problem. One of the bigger I won't say a bigger issue, but one of the things I'm watching right now is the current Supreme Court because um, when you have these, we had these these, these this emergency hearing on on Friday having to do with uh, these two vaccine mandates one uh, uh, one for facilities receiving uh, Medicaid care. Uh, support and then the other one, a, a an OSHA requirement on on large uh, on businesses, uh, on their employees. Uh, my reading in in those cases is that there are statutes passed by Congress saying that um, uh, the uh, you know the the uh, OSHA uh, or the Department of Health and Human Services that they're that they're both able that they are able to do things to protect people. The, the Supreme Court, at least to, to hear what I think is maybe a majority, the questions that were asked, um, were, were basically skeptical that Congress would have given the power of, let's say, OSHA to require a vaccine for people in the workplace. Uh, now, the statute doesn't say vaccine, but it does say protect health of, of workers. And so to me, that's not lots of reason to connect, but the court is skeptical because the word vaccine wasn't there. And what that suggests to me is that um, we may be looking at an era where we have a, a, a Supreme Court that, I, I mean, we're not talking about whether or not the government has the duty to protect workers. We're talking about whether government has the authorization is the right to, to protect right. workers uh and 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 here we have a court saying well i'm a little skeptical and i think that if the economy is going to be affected in a major way this is what some of the justices were were suggesting if the economy is going to be uh, affected in a major way maybe i will be skeptical of a governmental effort to protect safety in the workplace uh, as a matter of law, right? Um, and that to me, I, I mean, that's 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 harsh, right? And that that ruling, you know, I don't know how it's going to happen, but that kind of an argument would be devastating for environmental regulations as well. 
uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up because it also seems to me that there's a factor of time, which is always a problem with this. And I think it was Amy Coney Barrett who, in her questioning was sort of coming back to this, this issue that the, the administration and OSHA had, had put in emergency rules, that, that these were rules that had not gone through the usual process of, of co public comment. Um, you know, and of course there's a pandemic happening outside the window, presumably of the chamber, but, but, she wants a slower, more deliberative process if you're going to Im impose um, some sort of life-saving, I think, um, you know, workplace, uh, uh, some kind of life-saving workplace safety measures like a vaccine. So they're not happy if it's too fast. And then on climate change on the other side with environmental regulation, you know, we hear critics of that saying, well, we still don't know what the future is. It's too far. It's too distant. It's too big. So we can't possibly legislate about this. We can't possibly. We have to. And so it's like we're focused. We never decide the right time scale, Rob. I, I always am yeah, struggling yeah. with this. Yeah, well, it, it's good that you bring up climate because when I uh, I may be uh, one of the few that when I when I see this COVID hearing, I think about climate change. The reason mm -hmm. is that the EPA in the Obama administration and now in the Biden administration is is struggling to find uh, more creative ways to use uh, the Clean Air Act, the 1970 statute, to um, to control carbon emissions. I, I think there are lots of ways to do it, but I'll but I'll tell you that the statute itself doesn't say climate change in it, right? And and, and so. Uh, and so I, I suspect that at least some of the conservatives on the Supreme Court are going to at one point say, you know what, if you're going to pass a, a regulation, if you're going to promulgate a regulation under this act and it's going to have a large effect in the economy, we're going to be skeptical of uh, of uh, of EPA being able to protect the public interest, because that sounds really broad. Um, and for the same reason as the COVID thing. Um, the, the only other thing I'll, I'll point out, which I think sort of makes this case about whether or not you ultimately like the solution, you know, during the Trump administration, the uh, the Supreme Court was willing to defer to the administration in the uh, in the Muslim travel ban, for instance, um, and there was a lot of discussion in the arguments. This is an immediate event, you know. This is this is really serious. There could be imminent harm if the wrong people get in the country. You have to trust the president on this because you can't second guess uh, the president in a homeland security issue. Uh, and you and you had the, the you know, the justices uh, you know, essentially saying that, saying, yeah, you're right. I mean, we, we have to assume the president knows what he's doing and he's got a plan and he's acting in good faith. Um, but you don't hear those arguments about COVID. And I think right. at least not from these same justices. And I think the right. reason is that um, they're less comfortable with a government that's active in protecting the workplace and perhaps more comfortable with a government if it's protecting Americans from people outside of the United States. So I'm almost up on time in our conversation with Rob Burchick today on COVID calls. Um, Rob, I wanted to make sure we left a couple of minutes here to talk about your podcast connect the dots? How do we find it? And what's it about? Okay, so uh, it's called CPR's Connect the Dots, uh, uh, which I host. It's kind of a documentary uh, style, kind of a news uh, brief style. 
Uh, and what it's it's host or I hosted. It's produced by the Center for Progressive Reform, which is a, a, a policy institute that I work with that is dedicated to issues of climate justice, uh, building better democracy and uh, health and safety uh, in the United States. And that's what this podcast is about. It's for real people, uh, people uh, that are interested in how climate change is what we're looking at this season, adapting to climate change, how it's going to change where people move and live, how it's going to change the jobs uh, that people seek, how it's going to change people's lifestyles and, and types of recreation. So we're, uh, and I interview experts uh, from, you know, uh, all kinds of places, but also uh, regular people, uh, including uh, one couple that has made the choice to live only in their car. Uh, they have no home and they just uh, and they live in all different parts of the country and they follow the best climate. So uh, you hear a lot of interesting ideas out there. Wow, that's amazing. And, and um, when you do the podcast and you said it's for it's for a general listenership. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I struggle with this, so I wanted to ask you sort of like some any tips. I mean, we talk to experts all the time and translating what can often be very esoteric discussion uh, into kind of issues we can get our hands around yeah. is really hard. Yes. So how do you do it? <laughs> uh, I talked to, uh, I, I talk to a, a, a pretty broad not a lot of people, but people who uh, come from a lot of different, I talk to different backgrounds, you know, and, and I, I try to chat with people, kind of see what they're interested in, what, what makes a difference uh, in their lives. I, I did one story one, one time on, uh, on wildfires and, you know, was interviewing a, a smoke drum and people who were, you know, right near those communities. But one of the more interesting story, one of the most interesting stories to me was a, a woman uh, who lived in a Latino community in Las Vegas, very far away from the fog, but the soot was coming in there and causing all kinds of problems with people with asthma and so on. And we ended up spending a, a whole, you know, quite a bit of time just talking about pollution problems uh, because of the soot. Um, you know, something that, you know, a lot of people you don't see on the news, but there it is, you know, people going to the emergency room because of it. Um, so, uh, you know, I have I have some good people that are helping me, too, that uh, uh, that when they hear things, they let me know. But I think you're right. Uh, one of the things I found at, at EPA was that you have to make this real uh, because it is real. And and you only you only work about the th work for the things you love and you have to persuade people to, that this is a value they share. I think you can you can find the podcast on on various platforms and you can also find it at the website of Progressive Reform. So you can go to progressivereform.org and you'll find a CPR's uh, Connect the Dots podcast right there. So everybody should definitely check that out. And just on the way out, I wanted to highlight and as I was doing a little research before we talked and there was a news story about you as a teacher. <laughs> in this time yeah uh and from last from last spring and uh the students these kinds of stories i still like to shine light on them because you know everybody thought oh we're, we're going back to the classroom in the united states and then omicron had came and uh, you know many universities have gone back pivoted back to remote um and the students so the, it was a news piece that talked about your students kind of surprising you at the end of the at the end of the 
semester with a, a gesture of thanks. Could you say a little bit about that? Oh, it was, it, it, you know, it, it's the highlight of a teacher's career, right? <laughs> um, yeah, we, uh, you know, I had about 50 students. They were all first-year law students. Uh, and we had been through the ringer, you know, through or through uh, uh, COVID like everybody else, uh, you know, and uh, had been on our uh, Zoom, in our Zoom room way too long. At the very end of the, of the year, um, nobody had their screens turned on. And so I said, hey, nobody has their screen turned on. And I said something like, uh, if, if, you, uh, if you feel comfortable, turn your screen on last day of class, because I assume there might be people who, you know, were traveling or whatever it was. Um, and as it turns out, they were surprising me. And so all the screens lit up and they all had made handmade signs and, and things like this. And they were very dear, you know, sweet saying that uh, they really appreciated, um, you know, all the work that we'd all put into the class. What was interesting is they put it on Instagram and then it almost immediately went viral and there, i mean it i don't know how many views it's, it has millions and millions of views which is why it got in the press um and i i'm not on instagram but you know i've read a little bit and so on and i think one of the things that that people liked about it i think was that it was a moment of gentleness um you know kind of they were being very nice to me i was like look it's a tired year if, if you feel if, if you feel like you can turn your screen on, but I wasn't requiring it. And I just think it was like one of those moments um, that 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 said something, you know, that was very real and, and kind. And, um, and so I'm glad that I was some way a part of it. <laughs> Let me just remind everybody that you are listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Please join me tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern time. We'll be talking about the move to create a COVID investigative commission. And let me thank my guest, Rob Burchick. Rob, big fan of your work. And it was really an honor to get a chance to talk to you. Thanks for joining me on COVID. Podcast. I am so glad. I'm so glad to have been a part of your podcast. Good luck. And I'm so glad that you are doing this. It's important work. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.